The idea here is to frame appeals in terms of how they, they serve existing widely shared important values, right? So adolescents, by making healthy choices now, don't need to think, I'm doing what my teacher says I should be doing so that I'll be healthy in 10 years, which I don't care about. Instead, they get to think, oh yeah, I'm being, I, I'm being a, like a super in-the-know teenager and doing all these things that are very, I, I, know, I know I sound like a super cool teenager right now. I'm doing a great impression. <laughs> Uh, super in-the-know teenager, and my peers will approve of me is the bottom line. The conversations at the interval take place a few times a month at the Long Now Foundation's bar, cafe, and museum venue, The Interval, in San Francisco. This podcast is brought to you by Stripe, a company that's working to build the economic infrastructure of the internet. They help people start internet businesses and accept online payments from customers all over the world. Uh, tonight, um, we have Christopher O'Brien, who uh, is here from Stanford. He's visiting uh, with the CASBIS program. And he has been doing uh, really interesting work in getting people to change their long-term behavior uh, based on, on some new techniques that uh, he's going to be telling us about tonight. And with that, I'll welcome Christopher O'Brien. Thank you. All right. Uh, th thank you, Xander. Uh, by the way, it's amazing what it does to your confidence when people ask you if you want to have a cocktail waiting for you when you get up. So, um, so I'm a, a psychologist, I'm a social psychologist, and I study persuasion and influence uh, and with a goal of identifying ways to get people to change their behavior uh, in ways that will be helpful for uh, addressing some of the very serious uh, social and policy challenges uh, that humanity is, is, is facing. Uh, the, science, or the, the science of behavior change has become an increasingly important frontier uh, in the human quest to uh, improve our health and well-being. Uh, throughout much of human history, but especially the 20th century, we basically could count on getting rescued by technology, right? So anytime we had some serious problem, it was only a matter of time before a pill or a machine or device was invented that essentially fixed that problem. Uh, we're moving out of that space. Uh, and the reason for that is many of the most serious threats to human health and well-being these days uh, are the result of our own behavior choices. Uh, and so we need ways to uh, get people to change their behavior on a large scale. Uh, and it turns out the science of behavior change is not currently up to the task. It's badly underdeveloped. Uh, and so um, I, I've been trying to work on this for, uh, I guess now, uh, a little over 10 years. Uh, and the framing of the problem that I've, I've focused on uh, for at least the last, I'd say, five years, is uh, basically boils down to this question. How can we create internalized, lasting motivation for everyday should behaviors? These are the things people know they should be doing, but just struggle to muster the motivation to do on a regular basis. Uh, these images give you examples of the many such behaviors, right? Save for the future, uh, donate to charity, read to your kids if you're a parent, eat healthily, take care of the environment. Uh, vote, don't text while you're driving, that sort of thing. Uh, and they, they also represent, by the way, many of the pretty serious and persistent social and policy challenges that could be improved pretty dramatically if we could find scalable ways 
scalable and, and low enough cost that we could afford to scale them to get people to change their behavior. Now, uh, I'm not obviously close to the first person to realize that we need to get people to change their behavior. These uh, are some of the, uh, or just a couple of the huge number of examples of appeals people uh, see every day to change their behavior. Um, you can uh, you exercise as medicine, uh, you can beat diabetes by eating a healthy diet, we can save the environment by turning off the lights. Uh, one thing I want you to notice, the main thing I want you to notice about these is that these are all pragmatic appeals, right? They focus on the self-interested or otherwise pragmatic reason why people should change uh, their behavior. Um, and the problem with that is that's telling the reader why the person who made the appeal thinks it's important. Uh, or probably more accurately, the person who commission, commissioned the appeal. Uh, but uh, the problem with that is that it, it relies on self-control or willpower to get people to change their behavior. And psychologists have known for some time, this is not a, a, a domain you want to be relying on. Right? Self-control and willpower works sometimes in acute situations. It does not work for sustained behavior change. Uh, and so I've been thinking a little bit about how to sort of focus this question even, even more, and, and, and the, the sort of focused version of the question that I've been focusing on is how can we get people to care about the things they don't already care about, but should? Um, a couple of things I want you to sort of keep in mind about should behaviors. One is, this doesn't represent the situation. People know what the responsible choice is. They're not, they're not in doubt about that. Right? And so telling them or reminding them of the pragmatic reasons why they should change their behavior is unlikely to be giving them new information. So it's not really clear even what the theory of change is behind a pragmatic appeal. Uh, other things that are sort of a little less sort of directly obvious are, uh, are problems like uh, myopia or intertemporal discounting. It's referred to in varying ways depending on whether you're talking to a psychologist or an economist. Uh, but the central idea there is that we overvalue the immediate present and undervalue the distant future. And so, as with many should behaviors, uh, when a behavior requires a sacrifice in the immediate term in service of some distant pragmatic goal, the distant pragmatic goal is unlikely to win that fight. Relatedly but distinct is the notion of procrastination, which is simply, even if I do care about that distant pragmatic goal, there's rarely a compelling reason for me to start changing my behavior today rather than tomorrow. Right? And both of these uh, pose very serious challenges to, uh, to, be, to getting people to engage in should behaviors. And then the third important thing to remember I guess it's the fourth important thing I, I, I want to um, make top of mind for you, is that positive impact for many of these behaviors depends on sustained, repeated change in behavior. Um, and that's really important because there's been a, a major and, and important movement in behavior change recently called, called nudge. And most people uh, refer to it as nudge, and it's the idea that you can you can uh, set up choice environments so that the easiest thing to do is the thing that's in most people's best interest. Um, and it, it's a huge innovation, I think. It's, a, it's probably the single most important innovation in, in, be, in the science of behavior change, I don't know, maybe ever. It's a, it's a hugely important uh, 
innovation, but the problem, the weakness of it is that it, it's not very well suited to the sorts of should behaviors that require sustained change across a wide range of contexts for the simple reason that we don't have control over enough of the context in which people are making decisions, right? If you're trying to get people to adopt healthy diets, you might be able to change the order of the menu items at a restaurant, but that's not going to transform very many people's lives because most people don't eat at one restaurant all the time. Uh, and so the sort of complementary idea uh, to nudge that I've been working on with my uh, collaborators is something I'm calling values alignment. Uh, and the idea is to identify existing strongly held and widely shared values uh, that the desired behavior might serve and then frame appeals for that behavior in terms of how they might serve this alternative value. And so the idea is you're changing how people think about the reason for engaging in should behaviors. It's, it becomes less about the distant pragmatic outcome you're, uh, you're pursuing and more about living in accordance with some value that is important to you in the immediate term. Uh, and, uh, and so the idea here, sort of from a theoretical perspective, I talked about intertemporal discounting, this problem that the distant pragmatic outcome just isn't a strong enough motivator for people. The idea of values alignment is that you replace that distant pragmatic outcome with an immediate symbolic outcome, the good feeling of knowing you're being the kind of person you, know, you feel you should be being. Uh, and when I say values, I really do mean values broadly construed, right? What a person thinks is important in life, what has uh, immediate motivational force. And so for uh, a lot of the time I have left, I want to talk about uh, a particular example of, of a values-aligned appeal that I tested uh, with middle schoolers. Uh, the goal was to get eighth graders to reject unhealthy junk food in favor of fruit and healthy food. Um, and, you know, I'll, I'll just tell you a bunch of things you already know, just so that we're all on the same page, but personal dietary choices are an extraordinarily important cause. In fact, they're the single biggest cause of lost years of healthy uh, life in the developed world, and they're a really strong competitor for the single biggest cause in the developing world, too. They're five times as, unhealthy dietary choices are five times as important as physical inactivity as a driver of, of premature death and disease. Um, and so for that reason, and they're the major thing behind this skyrocketing rate of, of global obesity. This is in the US, but the, rate, the global rate is, the curve looks pretty similar. Uh, and for this reason, cost-effective, scalable interventions to get people to change their health, their, their dietary choices, are an, a very important scientific priority. They have been for about 30 years. Um, and, and by the way, the changes don't have to be big to be very important. So for example, there was an estimate published in The Lancet in 2011 that as of 2011, as little as a 20 calorie per person reduction on average across the US and UK would have gotten those countries to 19, 1990s levels of obesity within three years. It's a tiny, tiny change. But it's gotta be on a massive scale um, and it's gotta be sustained. Uh, and so, because it's been this scientific priority, there have been lots of people who've tried to develop interventions to get people to change their dietary habits. They tend to focus on the classroom, uh, partly because you want large-scale change, and schools are one of the rare opportunities to get access to basically the entire population at, 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 a, at a given age. Um, and 
So one thing that these interventions basically all have in common is that they involve some combination of health and nutrition education, so what's good for you, what's bad for you, how do you read nutrition labels, uh, and what's called skills training, and that usually involves a combination of learning how to set realistic goals, anal analyzing barriers to behavior change, uh, that sort of thing. The other big thing they all have in common is that they've failed, right? So people have been trying to do this for like 30 years, I'm not aware of a single intervention that keeps affecting people's behavior after you stop intervening. And I think the major reason for this is that they all share, either implicitly or explicitly, uh, an underlying assumption, and that is that long-term self-interest, the desire to be healthy in the distant future, is an effective motivator for teenagers. And I mean, I don't need citations, but I have them, but like, obviously that's not the case. <laughs> And so our approach has been to, rather than trying to get adolescents to care about things they don't care about, reframe the meaning of healthy eating so that it's consistent with the things they do care about. We focus on three major values in particular. One is the, the sort of well-known teen drive to rebel against adult authority. Adolescents hate doing what adults tell them to do. They'll often do the opposite just to reassert their autonomy. Uh, less widely appreciated is adolescence is a period where there's uh, a real increase in concern for fairness and justice and beyond the self aims. Just for, to give you a couple of quick examples, this is the time in life when people often first decide to become vegetarians for moral reasons or anti-globalization activists. They have a sense of themselves as agents in the world for the first time, and they want to make the world a better place. And unlike most adults, they're not yet jaded about their prospects for doing that. Yeah, this collection of optimistic people is the wrong place to make that cynical joke. <laughs> uh, okay, and then the third, the, the, the third big value uh, is, is going to be familiar again, and that's the drive for peer approval and status. It's certainly not unique to adolescence, but it actually is, is very strongly heightened in adolescence, and a big reason for that is, is that the central task, developmental task of adolescence, is figuring out how to be a social agent. So if you're going to do that, you need to be very attentive to what's being approved of and what's not. Uh, and so uh, what we did to try to appeal to these three values was essentially a a took a twofold approach. The first is we framed the entire intervention as an expose of manipulative food industry marketing practices aimed at tricking people into eating more junk food than they would naturally be inclined to, to eat. Um, and uh, here I'm talking about things like using deceptive labeling to conceal the sugar content in food, or spending unbelievable sums of money on laboratories that are specifically designed to figure out how you can formulate foods to make them as addictive as possible. Uh, the second thing we did was emphasize the social justice consequences of this food marketing. And here I'm talking uh, in particular about disproportionately targeting very young children, poor people and minorities, with marketing of the unhealthiest foods, because they're easy targets. Uh, and so our goal here was to frame healthy eating as a way to stick it to the man, to, re to rebel against a controlling adult authority figure who's trying to control us, uh, and as a way to stand up for people who are less able to defend themselves, both of which are, were sort of deliberately crafted to appeal to the, to the sort of adolescent set of values and sensibilities. Uh, and so essentially what we, what we were aiming to do here was to replace what we imagined adolescents sort of default construal, their default understanding of what a healthy eater is, something like healthy eaters are lame nerds who do what adults tell them to do, 
with an alternative construal. Healthy eaters are independent-minded people who are fighting to make the world a fairer place. That might sound like a tall order. I'll tell you how we tried to do it. Uh, so, uh, and, and what I'm going to describe is uh, a, a pair of randomized controlled trials. Uh, the first one was run with the entire eighth grade class of a rural, uh, suburban rural Texas middle school two years in a row. Um, they were randomly assigned to read one of three informational articles. So either they read an expose article of the sort I've already uh, briefly mentioned, uh, an active placebo article, so that was meant to represent the current gold standard in health education, so uh, took material straight out of middle school health class textbooks and choosemyplate.gov, the federal government's healthy eating website. And then a third condition, uh, a no we call it no treatment control. They read an article, but it had nothing to do with food. Uh, and then we measured whether this changed how adolescents were construing the meaning of healthy eating, so whether they saw it as, a, uh, as having different significance uh, than if they got one of the controls. Um, and then we me measured their, di their dietary choices. So this is just sort of a brief uh, schematic to represent our theory of change here. The idea is ch to... to change how adolescents construe the meaning of healthy eating so they would see it as consistent with the adolescent values of autonomy uh, and social justice. As a result, to get them to see this as a path to peer approval, if I'm acting consistently with widely shared teen values and I'm being the right kind of teenager that, that my peers should approve of, and as, as a result of that, to get kids to uh, make healthy choices. Okay, this is a brief excerpt from our uh, expose article. Uh, the title was Food in America, The True Story, What Food Companies Do Behind Our Backs and How Teens Can Take a Stand to Make the World a Better Place. We told them companies spend billions trying to get people to eat more than they really want and they get, get rich doing this. Um, and they deliberately target people who have the least ability to defend themselves, people like very young children and poor people uh, and minorities. Uh, we underscored that with this, these uh, kid-friendly marketing characters. And we made a point of including images of real food industry executives, all not coincidentally middle-aged white guys in suits, to serve as the objects of teen rebellion. Okay, compare that with our active placebo control. So as I said, this was lifted straight out of middle school health class textbooks and choosemyplate.gov. Uh, it taught them how the body absorbs nutrients, how to read nutrition labels. It included colorful, appealing pictures of healthy food and specific recommendations for how to get a balanced diet. Okay, back to this theory of change. Uh, I'm gonna tell you a little bit about what we found. So first, did we successfully change adolescents' construal of healthy eating, get them to see it as consistent with the adolescent values of autonomy and social justice? We measured this by asking them how much they agreed with statements like, eating healthy is a way to stand up to people who are trying to control us. And when I eat healthy, I'm doing my part to protect kids who are being controlled by food companies. And we found that having read the expose article significantly and substantially increased the extent to which kids agreed with statements like that relative to having read one of the two control articles. Next, did we change their perceived, the perceived social status appeal of healthy eating? So you have to be a little bit more indirect in trying to assess that. You can't say, do you think that other teenagers will think you're cool if you do this, because teenagers are very sensitive to the, the possibility that they might be being posers. So you have to ask questions like, 
how much do you agree with this? I respect healthy eaters more than unhealthy eaters, right? So that's on the logic that if they say they respect them more, they, they also expect that their peers will respect them more. We find that also is uh, significantly increased by reading the expose article re relative to one of the controls. Uh, and now we're down to uh, healthy choices. And so in the first um, study we ran, this, this study I'm telling you about right now, uh, we looked at just their food choice the very next day. And, and the way we were able to measure that was with the help of a, a, just a really cooperative principal. Um, and so it turns out he gives the kids junk, junk food or, 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 or a snack pack is what he gives them uh, toward the end of the, the year uh, as a thank you for their hard work in preparing for state tests. And so he said, you guys can just organize that. So we did. So we made up this order form that got distributed in, uh, in homeroom class uh, the day after we came. We made sure that the kids wouldn't see it as related to our study by having the principal advertise it long before anyone knew we were coming. So it, it, didn't, it wasn't suddenly this new thing where they had to choose healthy or unhealthy food. Um, and they got to choose two snack choices and one drink choice. And they had three healthy snack choices, fruit, trail mix, or baby carrots, uh, and three unhealthy options, uh, hot Cheetos, Doritos, and Oreos. Uh, and then they had two healthy drink choices, either re a regular bottled water or sparkling uh, bottled water, or three unhealthy options, sodas, two sodas, and a, a high C fruit drink. What we found was that getting the expose article the day before significantly reduced the number of unhealthy options kids chose, but by a very small margin. So a 7% reduction in the, number, in the average number of, of unhealthy choices. Um, and so one question is, should we care? Like a 7% reduction, that's, that's really small. Uh, and so we, we did a little bit of research and we were able to figure out that just based on the, on the carbohydrate, the nutritional content of, of these items, this reduction, if it were sustained, uh, would actually translate into a pound of body fat, either not gained or lost, every six weeks for girls, every eight, week for, eight weeks for boys. Uh, opposite, I'm pretty sure. Six weeks for boys, eight weeks for girls. Uh, just based on what their, their average calorie consumption. Uh, and so, good, okay, we did successfully change people's healthy choices. That was a gigantic if, I just put out there, if it were sustained over time, right? Um, I just finished telling you no one has ever successfully changed people's dietary habits over time. <laughs> and so, one big reason to think that we couldn't do this is that kids live in this environment that is absolutely pervaded by, by junk food marketing. It's deliberately designed to create positive emotional associations with junk food and increase consumption. It's been shown to be very successful at doing those things. Um, and, and never mind that we need to overcome that in the first place, once they leave our intervention, they go back into that world, right? And like, just to give you a little bit of a sense of the scale here, I, I looked this up. So our budget for this for the whole intervention, including evaluation and everything, was one hundred thousandth of one percent of Coca-Cola's marketing <laughs> advertising budget. Um, and so, but we had a thought about how we could tr try to flip that on its head. Um, and so we ran a second, a second study. So uh, again, entire class in, in this same middle school uh, in Texas that we found that was willing to let us do studies, and we were grateful for that. Uh, this time we, we eliminated the no treatment control because it never differed from the placebo. So basically, 
the placebo really is just to the, the current gold standard does nothing, I think, is the conclusion we can draw from that. Um, and so we, we randomly assigned them to one or the other of those conditions, and then we measured all the same stuff we measured the first time, but we added a couple of things. One was we measured their immediate gut level implicit affective associations with junk food, right? This is what junk food marketing is, is directly targeting, is trying to create that warm feeling when you, when you see junk food. So we measured that. And then we were also able to get access to data on kids' cafeteria purchases for the entire school year. So now we can look at uh, dietary choices for over a, over a longer period. Um, okay, I told you we had an idea for how to flip this, this uh, funding imbalance on its head. Um, and the idea was, what if we could change kids' understanding of food ads? What if we could change the effect it had on them, how they understood the meaning of it, so that instead of having this reaction, those ads served as reminders of our message, right? Every time they saw a food ad, they thought of our message. Um, and so if we could do that, then we thought we'd, we'd be effectively setting up the situation where the food industry would be paying to undermine itself with these kids. Um, and so the way we tried to do that was, was with an activity we called Make It True. So we gave kids these iPads to work on, they had images of food ads, um, and they were loaded into a software program that you could write or draw in. Um, and we told the kids, you can cross things out, write things in, draw whatever you want, take this from a lie and make it true. Now, when you uh, give teenagers an assignment that requires they do something that feels a little bit subversive, this was deliberately meant to evoke this sort of rebellious notion of using vandalism, right? Uh, you really unleash their creativity. And so they came up with some good things, right? So Doritos are loco, lies on the inside, lies on the outside. Dr Drake is saying, I do not actually like it there. <laughs> Now you can add diabetes to diabetes. Uh, don't eat, it will make, uh, make your own choices. That's the part I like about that one. And then the thing you want when you order salad should be salad. Okay. These are eighth graders. Okay, then we use this uh, reaction time-based computer task to measure what I was talking about a minute ago, these, these immediate gut-level reactions that you have. They're on an implicit level. They're beyond our control. And it's just, do you have a good feeling when you see this or a bad feeling when you see this? And we used uh, th this task, which is called the affect misattribution uh, procedure. And what it involves is just a really quick display. Oh, that's right. This one will work a really quick display of the image you actually care about what people think of, then quickly replaced by a blank screen, then an unfamiliar character that should have no uh, emotional association with it, uh, and then this mask. And then they're asked, is this pleasant or unpleasant relative to other similar unfamiliar characters? And, what the, and, and you can even tell them, don't let that initial thing you saw contaminate your assessment of that, of that neutral character it's impossible to not let it affect your, your assessment. And so, uh, and so what you end up with is, is, a good, is a good measure of their implicit affective association with that first thing, in this case, the Coke bottle. And we did this with junk food images, and we did it with healthy food images. And what we found was that get re getting this expose treatment significantly 
reduced the positive association with junk food, significantly increased the positive association with healthy food, and that change lasted the rest of the school year. We had three months left in the school year after, uh, after getting this intervention. That change held up for as long as we could keep measuring it. Uh, but then the, the big thing, of course, is did it change what kids bought at the cafeteria? So uh, it turns out the, the best thing you can look at in cafeteria data if you want to know whether people are making healthy or unhealthy choices are snacks and drinks. Entrees are accounted for all under the same category, so you can't tell the healthy from the unhealthy. Like 90% of them are unhealthy, but you can't say for sure. Uh, snacks and drinks, they just account for separately, so you can, you can say for sure. And what we found was a significant reduction in unhealthy purchases day-to-day -day for the remaining three years of the, of the um, school year, significant increase in healthy purchases. But this, this was actually qualified by a surprising uh, uh, moderator, and that, and that was gender. So turns out this intervention was extraordinarily successful with teenage boys. It wasn't as effective with teenage girls. Now, our, I think there are two reasons for this. I don't think it's true that it's actually not effective. I think what you, what you have to remember is that our control condition here was the, the current gold standard, right? The current gold standard teaches about health, and it talks about calories, which evokes concerns about body image. And so I think the more likely interpretation, although we really need more research to say with, with confidence, I think the more likely interpretation is that this expose intervention is roughly as effective as this, the traditional approach with girls, but minus the body shaming. That's conjecture. We know for sure that it was very successful in changing boys' habits. In fact, it, it created a 31% reduction in junk food purchases, 160% increase in healthy purchases. Don't get too excited about the 160%. It's on a very small base. <laughs> um, and so uh, the, the, other, the other reason we're particularly excited about the effect in boys is that to the extent anything has worked in this age group, it's only ever worked for girls. Nothing works with boys. Um, the second reason, by the way, that this might just not, not get, have quite as much motivational juice with girls is that the notion of sticking it to the man, I think, is, is a little bit gendered, we realized after the fact, and, and, and so that might, have been, that, that might have made it resonate slightly less with the girls. Um, bottom line here is that uh, values, this is an instance of what I'm calling values alignment, and, and I'll remind you the idea here is to frame appeals in terms of how they, they serve existing widely shared important values, right? So adolescents, by making healthy choices now, don't need to think, I'm doing what my teacher says I should be doing so that I'll be healthy in 10 years, which I don't care about. Instead, they get to think, Oh yeah, I'm being I, I'm being a, like a super in the know teenager and doing all these things that are very I, I know I know I sound like a super cool teenager right now I'm doing a great impression uh, super in the know teenager and I'm I'm being a good teenager and my peers will approve of me is the bottom line um, and I think this may be a powerful means to change uh, how change people's behavior across a wide range of domains and in a wide range of, of age groups. Now, I started with this example of adolescents. Uh, it would be totally reasonable to say, well, okay, sure, but like adolescence and rebellion is maybe like the single best example of a value that, that sort of drives a group of people really powerfully. So would this work well in other groups? Um, I'm gonna tell you about some in-progress research uh, to give you a sense of what this sort of approach might look like in an, in an adult population, what we focused on in that work was uh, trying to motivate regular small charitable donations. 
right? So uh, there's enormous benefit that could come from getting a large percentage of the population who can afford it to make small, regular charitable donations. Um, I think the major reason why that doesn't happen is that the thing that drives us to make charitable donation, as much as we'd like to say it's the benefit it has to the people we're giving to, it's the feeling of having done something good that drives charitable donation, I think, to a large extent. And that $10 that most people can afford to give to a charitable organization once a month just doesn't feel big enough to be significant. Uh, and so the alternative approach that we uh, are experimenting with is it, it focuses on parents in particular. Uh, and it was uh, driven by, or, 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 or this idea came out of an experience I had walking out of a supermarket with my son on Thanksgiving one year. Uh, I was walking out of uh, Vaughn's supermarket in San Diego, and uh, it was Thanksgiving Day, and the Salvation Army guys were out and, and ringing their bells. Um, and rather than just walk by, as I'm embarrassed to admit I usually do, I thought, oh, this is a great opportunity. And I took my son aside and I said, Henry, okay, you know how we're about to go and have this like, amazing dinner and enjoy it with our friends and family? And he was like, yeah. I was like, well, lots of people can't afford to do that. And so I want you to take this money and go give it to that person, put it in that bucket over there, and then they're going to help some of those families who don't have enough money to be able to do things like that. Um, and he did. And just the emotional bang I got for that was just so much greater than the emotional bang I would have gotten from dropping two bucks in the Salvation Army bucket by myself. And so I thought, well, this, this actually might have potential for, for many, if not most, middle-class parents. Um, I think most of us walk around sort of low-key worried we're raising selfish assholes. <laughs> like, I definitely do. I worry about that all the time. Um, and communicating values like this is not, it's not obvious how you do it, right? How do you get your kid to care about other people? Um, and so I thought, well, what if we frame regular charitable giving as a teachable moment, as a parenting opportunity? You incorporate your child into this giving process, and by example, you're showing them it's important to care about other people. And so we've done a series now of, of uh, sort of laboratory-type studies where we're sort of testing out these ideas before we do the big study you really want to see. Uh, and in all of those laboratory studies, we're, we're getting pretty encouraging findings. So if we get people like at the Children's Museum when we take them aside, if we get them to think about making a charitable donation with their child rather than just entertaining their child for them while they do it, um, they are more excited about giving and more willing to have their email address given to uh, a food bank uh, to, to, to be solicited for future donations. The study we're doing now is with CHIMP, which is um, a large uh, Canadian charitable donation hub. So you can give to any registered Canadian charity through CHIMP. You set up an account. They specifically encourage regular small donation, and so it's, it's sort of ideally set up for this. And what we're experimenting with is starting, hopefully within a week or two, uh, when people land on this site, they will uh, get one of the following three appeals, but this is the one I'm excited about. It's the, uh, it's the charitable allowance version, right? So teaching your child to be a kind person can be easy. Set up a charitable allowance and watch them learn your values, right? And the idea is you give your kid whatever amount you think is reasonable every week, 
You spend time that, uh, you, and, and being a parent, I know you need, need to set this up so that it doesn't require extra time in your week. And so we say like during drives or over meals, whatever, whenever time you have spare time to chat, talk about what might be some good organizations to give to, give to and then once a month sit down and give that money out. Right, and so uh, the idea is now the, the reason for giving isn't the benefit it has to, to the organizations you're giving to, the, the sort of direct reason in people's minds. The reason for giving is it's solving this pretty, pretty important parenting goal, this pretty important parenting problem for people. Um, and the side effect is that it has this charitable benefit. We're comparing that to um, the individual version, of course, so making kindness a part of your life can be easy. Set up a regular giving account uh, to live in a way that expresses your values. And then to make sure that this isn't just about giving with a person you love, we're comparing it to a partner giving group. So where you set this up with your romantic partner and, and you share the values together. And so our expectation is the charitable allowance in particular will be effective at getting people to register and getting them to keep on giving because it's addressing this existing important need. Okay, so th th those are sort of the core, uh, the core uh, findings I wanted to talk about and the core ideas you want, I, I wanted to talk about. I think sort of, if I, if I wanna leave you with sort of a bottom line uh, point from this talk, I think it's that there's been too much focus on getting people to do the right thing for what experts think is the right reason, right? What experts think is the right reason is highly relevant to policy discussions. It may not be as relevant to the motivational question, the question of what will get people to actually change their behavior. In fact, if the pragmatic reasons were important to, the, to, to most people, then we wouldn't need to appeal to them to change their behavior. The pragmatic case is very strong for engaging in should behavior. Um, and then related to this, I think there's just a little too much focus on material self-interest as the primary motivator of people. There's no question it's an important motivator, um, but I think there are situations, and in particular situations, uh, in which uh, a behavior, a, a sacrifice in the immediate term is required in service of some distant pragmatic benefit, where material self-interest really doesn't work very well for people. It just, it, it's not well suited to the way our brains work. And so in those situations, rather than trying to force it, rather than yelling at people that they really should care about their futures, we can explore alternative ways of motivating this sort of behavior, right? We can find alternative values that might be served by these behaviors that we're trying to encourage and appeal to people on those grounds. Um, and, and in doing that, uh, actually, actually uh, get traction and move the needle a little bit. Thank you very much. Thank you. My first question I have, and we're going to be taking questions from the audience as well, but I, I wanted to ask um, the kind of chicken or egg question with the way you do these studies. Do you, the one that, the example you brought up of the Salvation Army with your kid, you kind of figured out a, a hack and then applied it. Um, mm -hmm. um, or it, was that also the case with the dietary studies, or were you look at, do you also go, we have this problem, how do we figure out the values that we need to uh, associate with? Okay. The honest answer is usually it's the former. Usually it's, oh man, that worked on me. 
I wonder if it would work on other people or if there's a version that would work on other people. The healthy eating one was kind of an interesting hybrid and I've been moving more toward the latter, which is here's a problem, what are some good solutions? Um, the healthy eating one was actually born out of a consulting project. I'm thinking carefully about what will, will violate my NDA and what won't. Um, <laughs> But uh, I'm going to play, play it safe here and say uh, the goal was to get families to adopt healthy habits. We had, I happened to be reading a book about the food industry at the time. And so I started coming up with all these ideas that were super anti-corporate. And this was a consulting project for a Fortune 100 company. So they were like, no, we can't do that, man. We have partners partnerships with a lot of these companies. And so we just kind of like made a file of ideas. This was me and my, one of my primary collaborators, a developmental psychologist named David Yeager at UT Austin. In this case, we made a file of ideas that didn't work for that consulting project and pitched them as a grant proposal. And that's, that's what we yeah. yeah. Nice. And that was a federally funded? Uh, no, no, it wasn't. Uh, interesting. Um, and, and that brings me to my next question, which is, um, and I'm sure you get this a lot and, are, and think about it a lot, is this, this also seems like a gun you can get turned on yourself pretty easily. And that this same technique, I mean, effectively this is how, you know, ideas about vaccination uh, or something like that get spread by articles that are, are shown to people as science right. and make them feel like they're aligning with a certain set of people um, yeah. So we, we see this happening in the world today for, for nefarious reasons, and I'm wondering um, how that aligns with your work and, and how, how worried you are that they're going to use this kind of work with kids against them. Yeah, so let me think. A couple, there are a bunch of answers to that. So one is we made very sure that everything we said in the healthy eating uh, informational articles was true. So it's all based on journalistic accounts that are sort of solid and vetted, um, in, in part for ethical reasons and in part because we recognize that it would create this enormous, like, we'd be enormous hypocrites if we said, like, these guys are manipulating you, and we were manipulating them. Right. And so we, I mean, there are people definitely who would say we're manipulating, who would still say we're manipulating them. The way I feel comfortable with it is by making sure it's all true. So by making sure that we're giving them good information that I in good faith believe is an accurate representation of the big picture. Mm -hmm. um, and we frame it as such. We say, like, this is stuff we don't think you're being told. Like, you're, you're told other stuff. We think you're not told this, and so we're going to tell you this. Um, but there was more to your question. Uh, no, I mean, I think that, okay. I, that's a... Uh, I, the key there is, you know, is working with the truth, and also, I mean, obviously, truth is manipulated quite a bit these days. But I think that's right, and yeah. So that's the, the real question. But um, and and you're, I, I'm not expecting you to solve that particular problem. No, that's a hard problem. I do think I do think the vaccination thing is a different issue, uh, and I, I still don't know my head around that issue. So, yeah. but but I, I just mostly the reason I said that is just I think that's a, a little bit different. It's. It goes beyond aligning with that, that's that's really tapping into I think what it's doing is tapping into like the combination combination of like risk aversion and um, fear right but so it's like there is actually a, a huge component that is sticking it to the man part of that like yeah I see what you're that, saying that yeah 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 are shills for the pharma industry totally right if they yeah. believe in vaccination yeah, so yeah, yeah there's a similar thing but it's with adults generally right um, and I'm. A problem that we, we run up against a lot here at Long Now is this um, discounting of the future. And I'm wondering yeah. if, you've, if you've 
dove into that at a deep level to do, why do we do this? Uh, what, is, what is the evolutionary reason that, that, we don't, um, that we don't value the future? So with the with the like or with the important proviso that like armchair evolutionary theorizing is there's there maybe is no thing that is more disdained by academics and so like <laughs> please don't show this part to other <laughs> academics but um, it seems it seems like th there's a straightforward answer here which is just like you don't need to think about the long term to get to the like procreation point right, right. and that's the main driver of evolution so yeah. Great. Um, do we have some questions in the back there? Thank you. So you are working with... Hold, hold on one second. We have someone with a mic right behind you. We're oh. Keep it on the live stream. You'll be next. Uh, so my question is in the context of climate change. Most of what you brought up is are examples of changing individuals' behavior for yeah. their benefit. Climate change is something that, that's a collective problem. Yes. And the question is sort of a, is it the individual's behavior we need to change or the system's behavior we need to change question? But there's been a lot of emphasis on individual behavior change yeah. towards climate. So given your research, and given both of these things, is it the behavior of the system or the behavior of the individual we need? Yeah. And then what we've used so far to motivate people to change their individual behavior, what comments do you have about what's wrong, about the evolved strategies about getting things to work um, and, and using our behavior change theories, which also seem to be more focused on short-term behavior change rather than long-term ones? Yeah. All right, I have like 15 thoughts about that, so I'll probably forget some, but I'll try to get the best ones out before that happens. So, um, damn it, it's happening already. <laughs> hold on, hold on, it's coming. So the first thing you said was, oh yeah, okay. So the, the um, system versus individual, that's not unique to climate change. So like, that's also the perspective in public health broadly, right? So like, the one of the common answers I get to this work I talked about is like what we need to do is change the system. And that's certainly true. The problem is that there are, I don't know how to fix that problem, right? Because that, 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 that's like, there are enormous political barriers to changing the system. Um, and so I think the answer is we need both. Um, and the changing individuals gets a whole lot easier if you change the, the um, the system, but uh, I know how to try to change people's individual people's behavior, so that's the part I'm working on. Um, climate change, I think, is the one area of sort of beha behavior change uh, uh, appeals that is the most ahead of the curve on this. So I think people started figuring out, like at least 10, maybe 15 years ago, that. Uh, talking about climate change wasn't going to get traction with a lot of people, but other values would, like energy independence, or for uh, religious Christians, the notion of stewardship, which is important in the Bible. Um, and so uh, that's the only area of policy where sort of the current approach, I think most closely approximates what I would say is the right approach. Beyond that, there's like an art to it, to like saying it just the right way. I feel like they're not always great at that, but that, that's a pretty minor critique. Um, the single worst instance of behavior change, by the way, that I'm aware of, is, since we're in San Francisco, KQED. They are so bad at doing their appeals for donation. Like, <laughs> if, you had to, 
if you had to make a list of like the top five things to not do, they do all of them. It's unbelievable. They constantly communicate the wrong descriptive norm. They're always saying, if most people would give, we'd be off, we'd be off the air in no time. But unfortunately, nobody gives. You know, what, you know what people's reaction to that is? Okay, cool, I'm off the hook. It's unbelievable. Anyway, yeah, sorry, that was a rant. We were just, just coming out of the winter... Pledge drive, we all know. Yeah. So, yes. But like other NPR stations are better at this. Like I've lived, I've since lived, I, I used to live in the Bay, I went to graduate school at Stanford. So I lived in the Bay Area for a, a long while and then in San Diego and Chicago. KPBS, KQED, uh, yeah, KQED, that's the, what did I say? KQED is here. What is it? WBEZ in Chicago. Both way better at this. I don't know why KQED is so bad at it. They have some of the best psychologists in the world, like right down the road. <laughs> Nice. Uh, somebody else has the mic? Yes. So you've been talking about fairly, um, I'm going to use the word malleable populations. What happens when you're trying to affect behavior change in adults? Okay, so I was talking about adolescents who are malleable in the sense that they're adaptable. They, I wouldn't say that, that most parents would think of them as malleable in the sense that they... <laughs> listen to what adults say. Um, but I still take your point. They're adaptable in terms of how they think about the reasons for their behavior. They're open to trying new types of new ways of being. So uh, I don't think this depends on that. I think that sort of like the parenting studies are a case of an older group that's, that's uh, sort of responsive to this sort of approach. Um, I think that the big challenge the, the sort of big relative challenge among an older population compared with adolescents, I guess, that I can think of is habit and the, the challenge of overcoming habit. Um, but that doesn't strike me as insurmountable. I think like, if you find the right value and, it, and it's got enough motivational juice, hab habits aren't that hard to overcome. Thanks. Heather? So I wonder, because uh, you said this, you're specifically focusing on these should behaviors. And mm -hmm. I wonder if you see any dangers of applying this technique outside of that. And for example, I work in addiction. And so I, I can imagine this actually just lowering self-efficacy if you're talking to a population that's very hard time making that change. With, with uh, oh, that struggles a lot with the change. Right, and so yeah. having this very like strong identity-based thing that then is still hard to achieve. I wonder if that would have a, a counter impact if you apply these outside of those that type of behavior change. So that's a, a an excellent question, and I actually think it's broader even than than the way you're framing it. I think that the general risk that if you give people a compelling appeal to change their behavior and they fail, that that might have negative effects is, is, is probably a pretty broad thing to want to think about. Um, one thing, and, and actually, unhealthy food is a pretty good case of an addiction. It's, a, it's, a, it's kind of a complicated one, right? Because we, we're not supposed to stop eating food. But, <laughs> but, it, but, but yeah. Uh, and so um, there are a bunch of sort of psychological approaches that we incorporate into these interventions to try to, avo to, try to avoid that kind of pitfall and related pitfalls, for example, we needed to be very careful that we weren't um, like shaming overweight kids when we were doing this. So we like bent over backwards to make sure this wasn't about what you look like. This is about 
well, two things. It's about what you eat, and it's not, and, and, and no one's saying people who eat junk food are bad. People, what we were saying was, these companies are trying to trick you. And so that also sort of takes some of the, takes some of the potential for shame out of it. Um, we found in uh, related work in that consulting project that um, it, was actually, it actually made the overweight kids happier, not, not less happy. So this was in the context of a theme park. And so like, they made healthier choices and had a better time. So I think like, it's, I, I take that as, as reassurance that it's certainly possible to do this sort of thing without, uh, without um, creating the sort of negative side effects that, that you're alluding to. Uh, as, I, I briefly mentioned there are psychology, psychological approaches without telling you what they were. So uh, one big one, I think, is just uh, the notion of growth mindset, which has been widely popularized. It's this idea by, by Carol Dweck, a psychologist at Stanford, um, who's uh, been an advisor of mine and, and, and a major influence, that uh, just believing things are changeable, that you can improve, is extraordinarily powerful, in part because it changes your interpretation of struggle. So instead of being a signal that you're not capable of this, uh, if you believe that you have a fixed ability at something and then you struggle, then the natural, the natural conclusion is my difficulty is diagnosing me as not, not measuring up on this. But if you believe that, uh, that people can improve, then instead the, uh, uh, the common conclusion is this is an opportunity for me to get better at something. And so I think, I, I've done this a bunch in interventions, combining growth mindset with other forms of psychology, specifically with the sort of concern you mentioned in mind. Up oh, I don't, yeah. Up here in the front row, we have the mic? Or who has the mic? Okay, we're back there and then we'll come up front. Um, so I, I do want to make sure that I fully understand uh, Wason's talk. So you're saying appealing to pragmatics uh, directly does not work. And so, uh, right? Uh, I don't know that I would go be quite so blanket in that, but yes, sure often doesn't. Yeah, yeah. With all the like things academics say to not be to be sure they never say anything wrong. Yeah. So you developed a new system uh, called value alignment that, and and one particular instantiation of this that's effective for teenagers is uh, this framing of sticking it to the man. Right? Yeah. Um, now you yourself uh, were able to get them to do useful behaviors like eating more healthy yeah. um, and follow a particular ethical set of uh, guidelines by all these things true, um, but to me, uh, this gets back to the shooting yourself with your own technique, yeah. uh, because it's divorced from pragmatics, um, and because other people are not obligated to follow the same ethical guidelines that you yourself followed, mm -hmm. uh, you can apply this to other things, climate yep. change, well, these scientists, you can yeah. just lie, you say the scientists are trying to trick you, exactly the framing you've used, yeah. sticking it to the man is believing uh, this other thing they don't want you to believe, same thing with vaccines, and you know, um, the, the part that I'm confused about is it seems you're implying uh, that uh, because it's a value line, because you do it, that that's intrinsic to this framing that, that it'll uh, align well with their own best interests. But, but I think the core of this issue is since it's divorced from pragmatics, why isn't this just a technique for convincing people that doesn't really necessarily do anything good whatsoever? Yeah, okay. It is just a technique for convincing people. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's just a technique for convincing people. The bad guys already know about it. They've been doing it for a long time. The people who need this lesson are the public health workers and the, the earnest policy wonks who 
think, man, if we could just get people to listen. Um, and so right now, so yeah, you're right. So one version of, uh, of the message for my talk is like, now we can like get everyone to do healthy stuff all the time. Uh, I think a more realistic version is, this is an attempt to even the playing field a little bit, right? So like j junk food marketing has been using, I mean, it's funny. They sometimes hit on these brilliant approaches and then like go back to a stupid approach. So I don't think they have very good theory behind what they're doing, but they have a lot of creative genius behind what they're doing. And so you do get this every now and then. And same thing with, um, uh, I'm trying to remember, well, people who want to destroy the cl climate. Was that the, yeah. <laughs> but I mean like the beef lobby, they, I mean, I'm not, I don't want to like whatever, but, but I, I was at some meeting about like, how can we get people to make healthy, healthy choices? And, and it wasn't like a situation like this where I could just get to stand up and expound about my personal view on it for 30 minutes or whatever. It was just me and a bunch of other people who also thought they were the world's leading expert in it. Um, and so like, I, you know, and so I didn't get as much time, airtime to talk. And so like, but I just pointed out like, the, do what the beef lobby does, like identify a core American value and then tie yourself to that, right? So it's like beef, it's what for dinner. That's the, that's the point of that, right? The point is like, that's what Americans eat. Are you a real American, right? And so like, this isn't a new idea. It's really me putting, pointing at this approach and saying this can be used also to encourage healthy behavior. It doesn't only uh, persuade people to do bad, bad stuff. How do we make pragmatics actually work? Yeah, you can twist it because, uh, as, as, uh, as Xander just pointed out, I mean, truth is a really slippery subject these days. I, I, don't, think there, I don't think there's an escape from, from like, propaganda. Uh, I think the best we can do is get good at it and adhere to a, a value system in how we use it. I don't need enough money. I just beat the crap out of Coca-Cola with one one hundred thousandth of their budget, and annual budget. That's their annual. Our budget was over four years. I'm I'm curious also, um, and we'll get the mic up front um, about you. You one of the things that the kids uh, wrote um, was about I don't know. It was a Jay Z wanted to Drake. Sorry, Drake. <laughs> I'm already not cool. Right. Um, that, that Drake does it. And uh, yeah. so I, I wondered, have you researched the, the role model thing? I, I was always amazed with my daughter that if I got, if, if someone two years older than her said something, yeah. like it was the word of God. Oh, and, yeah. But if I said something, it was like I was furniture talking. Right? Totally, so, yeah. And, and so there's, I think there, there is this amazing kind of capability for kids to look up to certain people yes. um, in the exact right circumstances. Um, and, and as I look back on my own, Childhood, the many lessons that I learned from my parents were, were, were probably much more done by modeling and not by them telling me anything. Yeah. Um, but things that certain peers told me stuck in my head forever. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm just wondering how that fits into this research. The peer thing, the older peer thing is actually just standard. It's a standard technique included in adolescent interventions like this now. So you give a survey to a bunch of kids who are two years older and um, you get, and then, and then you get to a place where you can say, like, 
most kids in the ninth grade survey said that they thought this was a great idea. <laughs> and it, on its own, yeah. it's not likely to create lasting change. Well, I don't think we know that for sure. My, my sense is that on its own it's not, but it's really valuable, really powerful supporting psychology. Yeah. So it gives, it gives I think like one thing you face when you do a, an intervention with teenagers is you have to pass the test of like, are you legit or not? Right. And this is one of the things that can help you pass that test. You have to start by being cool. I mean, you, no, that's not a goal you should aspire to. It's not going to happen. But um, I mean, nor, nor should I, right? But I'm saying, like, you can, you can rely on the coolness of ninth graders. Yes. Yeah. Hi. Hey. Um, love, like, the really laudable lesson you're giving these kids of teaching them to be skeptical about corporate food production, <laughs> um, but feel quite uncomfortable in, your, in the way you gave those three examples of the Coca-Cola, the, the example of the like neutral food, food um, kind of dietary advice, and oh yeah, and, and placebo, mm -hmm. um, especially in light of the fact that there's a drive at the minute, with an understandable drive at the minute within academia towards a kind of left-wing politics. Mm -hmm. How much are you coming into these classrooms and being transparent about your political position? Because if, if it was a lesson in teaching kids to understand narrative and advertising, mm -hmm. you would also teach them about the biases within the, the neutral dietary politics. You would also, oh, sorry, so I teach them what? The neutral dietary diagram is obviously influenced by the food, food lobbyists, and it, it has its own implicit biases. So um, when you're talking about neutral, you're talking about the... It, what, what, what goes onto a healthy dietary plate, uh -huh. and, you know, the, that. the milk lobby has sponsored... Yeah, so... Yeah. There's all kinds of lobbying that goes into what makes up those diagrams. Right. Um, now, to me, teaching kids how to make responsible decisions in life about everything is yep. teaching them to be aware of how everything is a political message, of hmm. how you coming into this classroom is has implicit political biases. And I'm not sure, like, to, to me, that's a much more holistic way of approaching the problem. Like, sure. media studies, for instance. Yep. I'm not quite sure what value. So, so teaching kids to be skeptical and, and research their yeah. own choices, period. Yeah, so you're... I, and being aware of the, the biases of the messenger. Yes, okay, so um, I'm trying to like boil your, your comment. No, no, just to make sure I understand it. I'm trying to... I, I think if I were, if I were going to try to encapsulate it, it would be something like... Uh, this is this is all fine and good, but you're, and, and I know you're being way more polite than that. This is all fine and good, but um, you're still not really making them media literate. You're giving them your message and emphasizing things you think are important. Yeah, we're not just media literate, but politically literate. Politically literate, and you mean political like very broadly construed to me and like whatever my conception of the good is. is what she means. No, but you, just, you mean that, that this is informed by my conception of the good, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, wow. I, I don't know if I have a good answer to that. I think the reason I don't grapple with it is that it's too big. Right? Like, I don't know. I think I would be paralyzed if I tried. So it wouldn't be effective, I don't think, to just make them media literate. Um, because 
you need to give them a reason to care about it. And the reasons I'm going to come up with are going to be informed by my conception of the good. I think it's unavoidable. I think all of us uh, have our sort of private conception of the good. And I agree that at some point, people should understand that and appreciate that everything anyone ever says is going to be informed by that. But um, I'm trying to avoid a cliche here and say not allowing the perfect to become the enemy of the good. But that's really the substance of my answer, I think. Yeah. Thank you. Bowen? Yeah. It just strikes me that, I don't know if it's not really a question, but uh, that you land upon sort of a punk rock approach, yeah. you know, which is yeah. like, um, and the thing that people, you know, often get wrong about, about like what's what punk is about, like philosophically, is that you know they think it's nihilistic, right? right? It's like anti everything. Yeah. Uh, you know, but it's not. It's it's anti being told what to do, mm -hmm. uh, and um, and it's it's kind of thing for yourself. Yeah. Um, and but I taking in a little bit of what the last two questions of phrase too it's like how about uh, you know it's good you know how about it's 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 cool to care about your own health mm -hmm. right I mean sure it's cool to like want to stick it to the man understand right. these advertising messages etc yeah but there's a lot of different messages but like yeah back to your point yeah etc yeah I mean what about that angle like it's punk rock to care you know, yeah yeah actually I I'm not ready to say that I don't think that has a lot of potential. <laughs> I kind of love that. I'm going to think more about it. I kind of love that. Yeah. And, uh, we're going to wrap up here. And you're yeah. going to hang out and answer yeah. some more questions afterwards. But um, the, I guess the, the last question I, I have to ask you is, what's, uh, what's your next project? What, what, do you, what do you want to attack with this technique next? Or, or, or I'll give you a choice. Yeah. Um, if you could do anything and you got the grant for it, what would it be? I'm not going to do the anything one. <laughs> um, right now, what I'm trying to do is just figure out, figure out just how broad the potential is for this idea. So I'm trying it in a wide range of contexts. I'm trying to refine the theory and make sure that I understand why it's happening. So one thing I didn't, I didn't have time to put in here that we discovered about the adolescent uh, intervention is that it works best for um, the boys who are highest in testosterone, which is an indication of uh, being more pubertally advanced. Um, and testosterone is, is largely misunderstood. So people think of it as driving aggression. Uh, the, what, it, what it essentially drives is, the, is, is reward. Like we want reward and in particular social reward. Um, and it surges in adolescence specifically because we need to be driven to pursue social reward in order to figure out how to be good social agents. Um, and so what we found was that the boys who were highest in testosterone showed the biggest reductions in junk food consumption as a result of this intervention, which is actually a really remarkable finding when you think about it for a second. It drives reward sensitivity, responsiveness to reward, and junk food is super rewarding. So in the control condition, testosterone is correlated with higher junk food consumption. Um, and so what this is doing is it's not just picking off the people who were 
who had the least problematic behavior. It's actually changing the behavior of the kids who had the most problematic behavior. Um, and it's telling us something about the process by which this works at the same time. And, and, and that is, it's, it suggests that what we have done, in fact, is successfully change what kids think of as rewarding, which is what I briefly mentioned. It's this like substituting the distant pragmatic reward with an immediate symbolic reward. This is supportive of that. And so that's exciting. Um, that was a super tangent that didn't answer your question, but uh, I, I mentioned it just because every time we try it in a new context, we learn something new and cool about the theory. So another thing I've been working on is getting uh, parents in Uganda to give their kids micronutrient powder. So uh, there's an organization called BRAC. They're actually the largest uh, development NGO in the world, and nobody's really heard of them, which is and I never had, um, and uh, they're based in Bangladesh originally. And um, they have this model where they send community health promoters out into uh, communities and have them bring prophylactic health products to your door. So there's an earlier paper uh, by some guys at the Innovations for Poverty Action, uh, <clears throat> an academic organization based at Northwestern, uh, showing that that significantly increases uptake of prophylactic health products. So like, we have this stereotype that um, that uh, a stereotype of psychology that uh, like little inconveniences shouldn't matter that much, but this is a great demonstration that that's simply not true, right? So these are people who desperately need these products, and they buy way more of them if someone comes to their door. And part of the reason is, if you're poor, you don't just not have money; you also don't have time. Um, and so, man, I'm very susceptible to tangents. I apologize. No. Point is. Now, now BRAC is introducing this micronutrient powder, which is super important because it uh, prevents stunting. So even if kids get enough calories, they may not get enough of the micronutrients micronutri that their brains and bodies need to grow to, to fully develop. And, and after age five, the likelihood that you can ever overcome that deficit go, gets lower and lower. So they're trying to catch kids with parents early enough uh, trying to catch parents with kids young enough uh, and then get them to buy these at a subsidized rate uh, at the lowest price they can afford to offer them. Um, and they need to explain why they're important. And so we're testing an approach that uh, is values aligned, but that substantive, substantively isn't different from the, from the comparison condition. So the comparison condition is, is the default approach. It's, it's what they were going to do without us. And it's like they were going to use the picture. The picture on the box is a picture of a little cartoon tiger eating porridge. And it says, for your child's healthy growth. Um, and that makes a certain amount of sense when you realize that these are made in India and in South Asia, tigers are mythical creatures. Not so in East Africa. So the first reaction that parents had was like, is this cat food? <laughs> um, and then the second reaction they had was like, look at him, he's healthy, he's running around, what are you talking about? And so you need to explain, so I had this whole like qualitative process with parents where I tried to understand like what are your dreams for your child's future and how do you think about the relationship between what you feed them and, 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 and those dreams and that sort of thing. And we ended up with an alternative that substantively is the same but it's got an image of a, a young couple with a baby and then the same couple aged with you know makeup and stuff standing next to a fully grown uh, young man or young woman in graduation garb. And the slogan is stronger brain, stronger body, stronger future. Because the, the, the thing that parents talk about more than really anything is hoping their kid becomes a successful professional. Like parents in, in, in the parts of East Africa that I visited are willing to 
endure unbelievable hardship to make sure their kids stay in school, for example. It's not, there's no problem with a lack of commitment to their kids' futures, but the existing approach just didn't connect it to that strong drive. Um, so anyway, that's, that's, that's one future slash ongoing project. And, Very cool. Well, yeah. um, I, along with everybody here, hope you don't get hired by the ad agencies. Um, and uh, I want to That's thank not you. how they do it. <laughs> I want to thank you with uh, one of our uh, Long Now Challenge coins. Oh, and awesome. uh, stick you. around for a few more questions. Thank All you right. very much. Thank you. Thanks a lot. If you enjoyed this talk, check out previous episodes with Neil Stevenson, Stuart Brand, Kim Stanley Robinson, and many more. Find them on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or wherever you like to listen. The Long Now Foundation is a member-supported nonprofit dedicated to fostering long-term thinking and responsibility. Long Now members make everything we do possible. Learn more at longnow.org.